so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Okay, stop. <laughs> nope, nope. You're not a Muppet. You know, you don't have to. Maybe I am a Muppet. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me in the studio is the newly appointed acting president of the ERLC, the, last week I called you the, now I really can, the Brent Leatherwood. Stop. Hello, everybody. It's a joy to be back with you once again and be here uh, sitting across from my colleague, Lindsay Nicolay. Should I tell our listeners that you now require all of us to call you President Leatherwood? Okay. <laughs> See, we're the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which which means we should strive, even in our fallenness, to always uh, tell the truth. And that that is that is not accurate. So, <laughs> Brent is obviously embarrassed that I have mentioned this at the beginning of our podcast. In truth, though, we are all very thrilled. We're thankful that Brent is able to be at the helm. The trustees this past week, we had our meeting and appointed him as the acting president. And we are thankful. We're, we're thankful that God put you in this position for this time, Brent. And See, you didn't do, pay me to say that. Yeah, I was going to say, how, to say how do I know that's legitimate? I mean, because, you know, now there's there's like this, you know— this thing because I'm I'm now in this position and and so like you I'm know say nice things yeah maybe about you have you. to say uh, nice things about you find out <laughs> <laughs> see before when you said it it was like oh okay that's genuine yeah I don't know no. now I got some doubt <laughs> it's genuine we're all thankful for Brent Leatherwood and speaking of our trustee meeting I had the privilege of sharing about the type of content that we've been doing over the last year. So let's go ahead and get started and look at what the ERLC has been talking about this week. First up, I want to start with an article that highlights an announcement made to our board of trustees this week. This is by Jason Thacker, and it's titled, How Can Christians Navigate the Digital Public Square? Introducing a New ERLC Research Project on Ethics and Religion for a Technological Society. We are thrilled about this. Jason has done a ton of hard work to get all the pieces moving and put into place here. And I just want to read a little bit to you about what this project is going to do. The Digital Public Square Project will gather some of the best voices from across academia, journalism, public policy, think tanks, and most importantly, the local church to clarify the state of the digital public square and to cast a vision for Christian engagement in the areas of content moderation, online governance, and engagement with the technology industry as a whole. And if that sounds confusing— That is why we're thankful that this Public Square project is being put into place because they will help clarify what what these things mean and what a Christian's role should be 
in speaking into the digital public square. And as a part of this, I'm really excited that two books are going to come out in uh, 2022 with BNH Publishing and BNH Academic. They're titled Following Jesus in a Digital Age. That's one. And then the other is The Digital Public Square Ethics and Religion in a Technological Society. I've had a chance to look at the contents of Following Jesus in a Digital Age, actually, the table of contents, and it just looks so great and so helpful for us as believers who maybe aren't up with all this technology speak and aren't sure of uh, our place or where we should be involved. And this really is going to spell it out and going to be written in a way that we can understand and figure out what our role to play is in social media and the digital public square and how we can glorify God through it. Well, as I told the trustees at the meeting about Jason, who is incredibly gifted and, and incredibly humble, Jason has quickly carved out a role as being the leading voice in evangelicalism on technology and ethics, and he is just a, a great member of the team. Need to make sure and check out. He actually has his own podcast, The Weekly Tech, that comes out every Monday, and he provides his kind of thoughts on things and interviews folks. It's a, it's a great podcast. But what a moment for this to, to be released, right? So just broadly, technology, the internet, uh, has, has essentially upended culture uh, over the last several decades. But then like even this week, the Wall Street Journal has revealed after obtaining private memos from within Facebook about just some of the information uh, that the staff there at Facebook knows about the ways that interacting with their platforms is changing and is affecting people's mindset, is, a, is affecting their own understanding of like their body image and whatnot, the harm it is doing to people. And I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's something like Instagram. Instagram is shown to be apparently very toxic for teens, and in particular, young teen girls. And they've known about this for years after conducting studies on, on Instagram users. And I am just so thankful that we now are going to have a project that is entering into this space to, A, help Christians think about how to utilize emerging technologies in a God-honoring way, B, uh, as a way to resource and equip the church so that pastors know how to talk about these issues cogently and in a way that is uh, helpful, and also as a way to speak in to these secular companies, these technology platforms. Because a lot of times, and again, this is actually something I also shared with the trustees, it never ceases to amaze me when Jason says, oh yeah, I got a call from this technology firm or, or this technology company. And they basically have said, hey, so we've we've created this, uh, this, this new platform, but we didn't stop to think about the ethics of doing so. Can you help us just maybe understand the uh, the effect we may have on folks and and Jason just essentially being you know taking a very mission oriented mindset is willing to sit down with these people uh, who who don't have a, a biblical framework for thinking through these issues. He's he's sitting there patiently walking them through the effect that uh, their platforms may have on things such as religious liberty uh, or human dignity or free speech rights. And uh, I'm, I'm just so excited that this project is now public and that our trustees approved it uh, resoundingly, and we can get it off the ground and going. 
Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight there's going to be a four-prong approach that will extend throughout 2021 and 2022, which will include those titles that I told you about, that an in-depth report on the state of the digital public square, a set of guiding ethical principles for digital governance, which is just great and so needed, and numerous resources, as Brent highlighted, for the local church to use to engage and bear witness to the gospel. So we are thrilled about this. We are happy for Jason. So thankful for his leadership. Next up, we have a piece by Jill Wagner, and we wanted to continue to focus on the people of Afghanistan, and especially those who are refugees who were able to make it out of the country, specifically who are coming here to America. So she has a piece titled, Four Ways the Church Can Serve Afghans and Other Refugee Communities, an interview with a pastor born in Syria. And this gentleman, Pastor Fadi, was born and raised in Damascus, Syria. As Jill writes, mere steps away from the house of Judas, where the apostle Paul came after meeting meeting his Lord on the road to the city, which is just incredible. He came here to America, and he serves as the executive director of the International Leadership Coalition. And this ministry focuses on creating awareness of the international community in Middle Tennessee, supporting international ministers in the U.S., and creating partnerships between the international church and local church in the States. So, it's just such an important ministry that he is a part of, such an important ministry to be able to educate and equip believers to serve refugees who come here to America, to a strange place, a strange land that they have not been in before, and they need the church in particular, to surround them, to support them, to uphold them, to affirm their dignity, and to help them uh, figure out and acclimate to a way of life here in the United States. I just wanted to highlight just these four ways that we can become involved. And he says, practically, and we must engage these nations. And then he gives a list of questions and some explanation there. He talks about ethically. We need to think about this ethically. Why are we doing this? It's because our mandate comes from God's word. Intentionally, uh, we need to have direction and goals to accomplish. And then eternally, that the reason that we are doing this is because we want to give clothing and shelter and provide for people. But we want to remember that we're ultimately holding out the eternal shelter that can be found through Christ to them. We want them to know the hope of heaven and the hope of a Savior. And then finally, I wanted to highlight a piece by Willis Dietz, and he is a children's minister in Kentucky. It's titled, Five Things I've Learned About Children's Ministry and Volunteers. And I think the importance of this article is that it's very practical, but it's essential because we want to be a church and we want to be believers who seek to intentionally protect and disciple our children. And that means that when it comes to how we obtain volunteers for children's ministry, how we structure volunteers, how we structure our children's ministry, how we train our volunteers, we have to keep our children's safety in mind and um, our children's good in mind. And he gives several really good suggestions from his own experience. But what I really wanted to highlight is that anytime you're getting volunteers for children's ministry, you need to get the right volunteers. And this means that you vet these volunteers properly so that you are entrusting your children the best that you can to people that they will be safe with. And I just wanted to plug our Caring Well initiative, a training resource, free training resource for your church, for your church staff, for your volunteers, to be able to train them in how to make your church safe for survivors of abuse and safe 
from abuse. And there are steps, practical steps that we go through in there. We point you to uh, resources that you will need. This is not just something that that we need to be willy-nilly about, but something that we need to take very seriously. And we have worked hard through here at the SBC and at, here at the ERLC to make sure that we can thoroughly equip our churches to be safe places. Well, I'm so glad that Jill did the interview that you highlighted with Pastor Fadi Al-Hagal. He is a pastor at Brentwood Baptist, which is my church. And so a little little hometown cred there and uh, really appreciate uh, Jill doing that. And just, you know, Fadi is an amazing member of the the team at BBC and uh, his, his perspective within the international ministry uh, that BBC does is just, gosh, it's so good. And it, it, it really has helped the church understand folks that, that are coming in. And, and, you know, Nashville is so, is such a growing, such a fast growing city that in many ways, the nations are coming here. And uh, to have someone like him on staff and someone just, you know, who is within the SBC, that is a learned voice on these issues that we can turn to and get guidance and wisdom from him. That's just great. And so I'm glad we have this resource. And then the item that you mentioned from Mr. Dietz, once again, abuse is in the news. We're getting ready to talk about that in the culture section. It is certainly something that the church should confront and the church should prepare for and taking uh, these kinds of steps to make sure that the the folks who particularly are in our children's ministry areas are vetted and are, are prepared and, and know what to look out for in case uh, some sort of vulnerable situation were to occur, uh, try and prevent those uh, and how to react if those do occur. Like that's, we've got to keep making sure that this stays at the forefront of uh, the minds of pastors and ministry leaders. Well, to quote one of our former colleagues, that's exactly right, Brent. <laughs> and that's why we're thankful to be able to continue to provide these resources for free to help the church to to keep people safe, to remove stumbling blocks for the gospel. We want people to to be in a place where they can safely hear the gospel and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And we want the church to be a refuge for people. And uh, we want to be able to do our work and our ministry well within the church and within the SBC. And so that's why we provide so many of the resources that we do. We have uh, several other great resources on our site this week, but for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Well, while we were at the trustee meeting in a, a hotel for a couple of days, it when you're in the midst of those meetings, it seems like the world kind of stops. You don't know what day it is when you resurface or what's been going on in the world. So let's move into our culture section this week. Brent, tell us what's been going on. Right. So since we just talked about uh, ways to prevent abuse, it would make sense to start there because there was a big cultural moment this week that happened on Capitol Hill in the U.S. Senate. And that involves several Olympic gymnasts who testified in front of the U.S. Senate about the FBI's failure to investigate the abuse that took place under Larry Nasser. So we'll, we'll get into it there with CNN uh, providing this story. Olympic gymnasts Michaela Maroney and Simone Biles ripped the FBI and the Justice Department in Senate testimony Wednesday for how FBI agents mishandled abuse allegations brought against Larry Nasser and then made false statements in the fallout from the botched investigation. 
Quote, they allowed a child molester to go free for more than a year, and this inaction directly allowed Nasser's abuse to continue, Maroney told the Senate Judiciary Committee. After recounting vivid details, she provided the agent interviewing her about Nasser's abuse. Quote, what is the point of reporting abuse if our own FBI agents are going to take it upon themselves to bury that report in a drawer, she added. Maroney and Biles were joined by gymnasts Maggie Nichols and Allie Raceman, who were also among the hundreds of athletes assaulted by Nasser, the former USA gymnastics team doctor, who is now serving a several decades prison sentence. Uh, at one point, uh, Simone Biles, in the gripping testimony that she provided, she called out the name of Rachel Denhollander, uh, who is also a survivor. Uh, she's a former gymnast, and uh, she is an attorney out of Louisville uh, that has been one of the foremost advocates for combating abuse and for for our context, trying to to call the church's attention to the scourge of abuse. As a matter of fact, a, a few years ago, some of our audience may remember that our former president, uh, Dr. Moore, interviewed Rachel Den Hollander on the stage at our Caring Well conference. And Simone Biles said to quote Rachel Den Hollander, what is a little girl worth? Which is a point that uh, Rachel has made uh, throughout this situation. And, and so uh, once again, uh, abuse is back in the headlines. Uh, people need to understand how serious this is and uh, how we all uh, need to commit to ending it. Yeah, and Rachel, I wanted to highlight that Rachel contributed to some of our Caring Well resources as well, which just shows you that we have an expert, an attorney, an expert in this subject, a, a victim who was involved in this, and, and a brave woman involved in these resources. And, and so I think they will be of great benefit to many, many churches. It's just sad. It's sad that the FBI that's tasked with carrying out justice um, throughout our government would drop the ball on this. And, you know, I don't know all the details, but it just, abuse, the, the ball should never be dropped on allegations of abuse. And um, just the sheer magnitude of the victims of Larry Nasser and the reporting that was happening and um, how it wasn't addressed in a, in a way that would protect other young girls from having to be victims is just sad and it just shouldn't be happening. That's right. And and I should point out that since we're talking about Rachel, she was the first survivor to come out and let people know about the abuse that was happening with Larry Nasser. And so she she started this and and she deserves credit for the courage that it took to come out and make it be known the wrong that was happening at Michigan State and and with the the Olympic system. And uh, FBI Director Chris Ray, he was a part of uh, these hearings, and he testified that he felt heartsick and furious once he learned the extent of the agency's failures. Uh, CNN goes on to report that still he painted the botch investigation as the product of individuals who betrayed the core duty that they have of protecting people rather than being reflective of the agency as a whole. So um, there is there's still very much a, a reckoning to to come here. But uh, this was certainly a story that dominated uh, the headlines this week. Moving on uh, to talk a little bit about coronavirus. Uh, this also comes to us from CNN. And it reports that we have passed a, a grim milestone. One in every 500 U.S. residents has now died of COVID-19. 
the story goes on to say this. As of Tuesday night, 663,913 people in the U.S. have died of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University data. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the U.S. population, as of April 2020, was 331 million people. It's a sobering toll that comes as hospitals in the U.S. are struggling to keep up with the volume of patients and more children are grappling with the virus. In hopes of managing the spread and preventing more unnecessary deaths, officials are implementing mandates for vaccinations in workplaces and masking in schools. I bring this up just to say, once again, you know, just try and make another point in our audience. If you haven't yet gotten vaccinated, please talk to a medical professional, seek out a doctor's advice, and more than likely, barring some really extenuating circumstances, uh, they will advise you that it is much more safe to go get vaccinated than to risk getting this disease, which every person who comes into contact with it has a slightly different reaction. And some people, they just send, say it ends up kind of feeling like the allergies. Other people, it leads to you know much more dire consequences. So it is a sad moment, though, to realize that that many of our fellow citizens have passed because of this this virus. And it's a number that I don't think, a statistic that I don't think when the pandemic began that we would reach. I, I don't know what the estimates at the beginning were, like low hundreds of thousands maybe. I don't remember, but it, we didn't think it would it would be like this. And so it is sad. I, I understand people that are genuinely hesitant about the vaccine just because of fears, because of misunderstanding. And so as Brent said, there are resources to go to. There are people to talk to that can help allay those fears, talk people through many of the concerns and many of the questions. We've provided some resources that we were able to talk to experts and uh, they answered some of our questions. And so we're thankful to be able to do that. We're thankful for the vaccine. Yes, please seriously consider the vaccine. And then as COVID keeps dragging on, I just pray that the Lord would cause us as believers to repent of the way we've treated each other in the midst of this through the polarization and just how hateful and spiteful we've been to one another because of how divided we are on these matters. Elsewhere across the country, a big political story this week was the recall attempt in the state of California. This comes to us from NPR, and it states, the attempt in California to recall Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom has failed according to a call by the Associated Press, allowing the governor to stay in office until at least 2023. Newsom said on Tuesday night, I am humbled and grateful to the millions and millions of Californians that exercise their fundamental right to vote. He said, speaking uh, almost somberly to a group of reporters, we have so much in common in our state that we give ourselves credit for, he added, expressing how difficult life has been for Californians during the pandemic. Getting the vote to the ballot took an unlikely synchronization of political fortune and Newsom's own missteps. Last year, a judge gave the recall campaign an additional four months to collect signatures, citing the difficulties in distributing petitions during the pandemic. And then later that same day, Newsom dined at the upscale French Laundry restaurant in Napa Valley, ignoring his own guidance to avoid gatherings as the spread of coronavirus picked up. And look, you know, throughout the pandemic, we certainly have had uh, our own issues uh, trying to relay guidance as it pertains to religious liberty to Governor Newsom's office. And uh, there are a number of citizens in California that 
are frustrated with uh, the the type of leadership uh, that he has exhibited, uh, particularly as it relates to churches. Uh, there has been just so much uneven and inconsistent uh, guidance uh, and requirements that the state government in California has given to folks during the pandemic. Uh, I mean, at one point, it just seemed like folks in Northern California in particular were just never going to be able to meet again as a church. And so uh, there certainly was a lot of frustration uh, that was built up and aimed towards uh, Governor Newsom, but uh, he he did survive this this recall attempt. Next, uh, there's been a recent law in Texas that we have talked about quite a bit, SB8, the Texas Heartbeat Bill. Well, a judge has agreed to hold a hearing on October 1st to consider temporarily blocking enforcement of Texas's restrictive uh, ban on abortion after an emergency request from the Biden administration. And we do have a resource, an explainer on this uh, law at uh, ERLC.com to help you understand the kind of the nuance about this. And it will be interesting to see uh, what this hearing uh, holds and how this judge rules. Uh, According to Axios, the hearing comes after the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit last week against Texas over the new law, which bans nearly all abortions and awards at least $10,000 to anyone who successfully sues a person that helps a pregnant, they say person, (laughs) we we acknowledge the biological reality, we say pregnant woman, have access to an abortion after six weeks. So this is certainly something we are going to be watching. All of this is happening just as a reminder uh, right before oral arguments come in the Dobbs case uh, before the Supreme Court, which many see, including us, as a, our best chance at potentially overturning Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Which wouldn't that Wouldn't that be exciting to see those overturned? This hearing on SB8, important to point out that it's not surprising because as many have said, this is a, it is a unique law in many ways. So challenges were expected, but at the same time, we can celebrate every day that that more lives are saved and that um, these little lives are protected as early as six weeks when many people don't even know that they're pregnant yet, but these little ones have heartbeats. So we rejoice in that. And we are just, we're watching and waiting and we will see what comes of it. That's right. It's interesting pro-choice advocates out there, they they are using that as like an argument uh, against committed pro-lifers like us. And they're saying, well, many women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. And we're like, Yes, that's exactly the point. Right. <laughs> We're telling you that that life matters even if you don't know that that life is necessarily uh, within you yet. So, I mean, no, that yes, we we agree. Uh, and so that's – it's always interesting. But uh, this is certainly something that we will uh, continue to monitor and keep you updated on uh, here at the RLC. Finally, we let off talking about the actions of our trustees and, and one important development is – Uh, According to Baptist Press, the ERLC trustees have approved the profile for the next president. BP reports the trustees of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission approved Tuesday night a candidate profile to guide the search for the entity's next president and initiated the process of receiving applications and recommendations for the office. The ERLC trustees endorsed without opposition a profile presented by the Presidential Search Committee that consists of eight criteria a candidate must meet to fulfill the role of the commission's next head. The action occurred during the trustees' annual meeting, which concluded on Wednesday at the Opryland Resort. 
information on how to apply for or recommend a candidate for the ERLC presidency, as well as the full candidate profile, may be accessed at erlc.com slash presidential search. So we're really thankful that uh, our trustees approve this and have uh, now decided to move into the next phase, uh, which is accepting nominations and resumes and um, like a number of our pastors and church staff members uh, out there understand all too well. Uh, this is this is a great step, and it's just one necessary step in a very long process towards identifying the proper candidate to fill this role that God is calling to. Yes, just the beginning. And will you will you read off those qualifications? Just the bolded lines. I don't have my yes the article okay. in front of me. So, in its own words, the profile approved by the RLC trustees calls for the candidate to be, one, spiritually mature, two, a faithful servant, three, convictionally Southern Baptist, four, appropriately educated, five, an excellent communicator, six, pastoral in heart, seven, an experienced leader, and eight, a proven unifier. Did you know that you were reading a description of yourself right now in the the intro? Ah. (laughs) Is that how you would have described yourself, Brent? No. Oh, well, we're thankful that— I am am a lonely servant of Christ and and chief amongst sinners. That's that's how I would describe myself. As we all should view ourselves, because that is the truth. And we are all just putting our pants on one leg at a time, (laughs) as they say. So so we are excited for the way that our trustees— have stewarded this and will continue to. I have so much confidence in those who are a part of this search committee and their walk with the Lord and their listening to the Lord's leading as they pray about this and and receive nominations, applications. And uh, so I'm excited to see who the Lord has for the for the future of the ERLC at the helm. I'm excited for who the Lord has right now, the staff that he has, the acting president that he has for now, because our work continues. And we're not just saying that because we are actually employed by the ERLC, um, but we're saying that because it's true. As you said, Brent, the oral arguments for the Dobbs case are coming up. There's always something going on that we need to be advocating for and educating believers about. And so we are, we're thankful for this interim period and we're thankful for what the future will look like. And we trust that it's all in the Lord's hands. That's right. So Lindsay, that's your look at This Week in Culture. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. I'll go ahead and start. And then, of course, Brent, you can follow as my faithful co-host. Well, I don't really have anything to recommend other than just um, not even really a story to tell. You may not even care about this, Brent, if you were sitting at the lunchroom table with me right now. In fact, you're just on your computer right now. I hope listeners know this. (laughs) He's not even paying attention. But we went to the hotel this weekend for the trustee meeting, I thought it would be a great idea since we were local to bring my husband and two small kids, two and eight months. And (laughs) turns out 10 out of a 10 would not recommend that (laughs) unless you are Joseph and Palmer Williams because they are so go with the flow. But uh, my two-year-old daughter is just all over the place and was so thrilled and amped up. She didn't take a nap. Turns out my kids can't sleep in the same room because they were waking one another up. And I 
rolled over in the night. I looked at my husband and I was like, whose brilliant idea was this? And of course it was mine. But I will tell you, it gave us a trial run for flying and going to Florida in October to visit family, just to know how much stuff you have to pack and bring along. But also I've turned into one of those parents that I didn't think I would be. And I bought a backpack leash for my two-year-old and I used it at Opryland. And it's it's a game changer. You feel like people are uh, judging you, but I don't really care because I don't want to lose my child and I don't trust people. <laughs> so, <laughs> but she can't run away when you're pulling her on a leash. It's terrible. I don't want to get any emails about that. I know that she's a human being full of dignity and worth, which is precisely why I wanted to put her on a backpack leash. Have you ever used one of those, Brent? He's not even paying attention to me, guys. No, I've never used one. I believe in human dignity. Uh, <laughs> So do I. I want to protect my child. <laughs> no, I've never used one, but believe me, there have been many a times where I've just wanted to lasso Rhett with whatever I can to keep him from running off and running away and running wild. So. Well, and also my, obviously my eight-month-old is, well, we're in the middle of a pan- pandemic. My eight-month-old is crawling. So he's crawling on this nasty, dirty carpet. My husband and I have a thing about not wearing our shoes in the house. He's crawling on who knows what kind of people's shoes have been on that carpet. So he's crawling on that. And then my two-year-old in the midst of a pandemic is licking everything, you oh. know? And so it's disgusting. Oh. <laughs> I just don't, I don't understand why people like to travel, why they enjoy <laughs> it with two small children. It's just not, it's not fun. It's not fun. And it's work. And so we had so much fun. We just signed up to do it all over again. <laughs> October. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That reminds me of a story my pastor tells about his son, which I don't think he'll mind me sharing, but they went to Disney and I want to say his son was like three or four years old. And they're standing in line and it's a small world, which every person, especially families with children, goes to. It's a small world for the ride. And they're sitting there, he's talking with his wife. All of a sudden he looks down and and his son is licking the handrails. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. Just ah. <laughs> And he's like, ah, what are you doing? You don't understand what is all. He said, within mere hours, he, he was so sick. sick. <gasps> oh. No, that's <laughs> disgusting. Yes. Oh. So, yeah. yes, when you're in the licking phase, ah. Uh, that can that can that can end very poorly. Yeah. Well, and she was she was um, walking along on one of the bridges where there's water. She loved the water, mm. and she was like, I don't know if you've seen Miss. Have you seen Monk the show? No. He has OCD mm. and like he is compulsive, and he touches things as he's walking, like the light poles and things. <laughs> and so she was touching the uh, <laughs> she was touching the little the rails on the bridge, except for whenever there were people there standing looking over, she didn't stop, so she was touching people's behinds. <laughs> I'm like, Marion. <laughs> and you can't stop her. It just happens without you being able to stop her. So she, she's a mess. We're making memories, but that's it. If you have small kids, don't travel unless you just really dislike yourself. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, the thing that I'm bringing to the lunchroom is the first all-civilian crew has launched to orbit the Earth. So unlike the space flights that took place earlier this summer, these folks went into orbit. As a matter of fact, they went higher than the International Space Station. That's up there. Yeah, they're they're farther than actual astronauts. At the last Apollo something. Yeah. I don't. I gotta get my facts. So right it's up. an all civilian crew. Which, by the way, there's a picture of them in this this story from NPR. 
spacesuits have gotten a lot cooler, more more modern in their design. They're no longer these big bulky marshmallow yeah. things. Which that's, well, I would hope that's interesting. So, uh, the commander of the flight was Jared Isaacman. And he's the founder and billionaire CEO of Shift4 Payments. Never heard of that. And he was accompanied by Haley Arsenault, a physician assistant at St. Jude Children's Hospital. Who, let me just interrupt here, herself is a childhood cancer survivor. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And that is that is certainly awesome. Chris Simbroski, an aerospace data engineer, which that, that seems like that would be helpful for your first uh, civilian space flight to have that. And a pilot... Again, also very helpful, although she wasn't the commander of the flight, but pilot and geoscientist uh, Sion Proctor. Uh, so kudos to them for history. And, you know, if our former colleague Josh Wester were here, he would just be telling us all about space travel, mm-hmm. how he can't wait uh, to be a civilian up in space. And then you would come back with your requisite fear of space. Yeah. Well, so. I was just going to tell you, I saw the girl who had had – uh, pediatric cancer, and she survived. She actually has a prosthetic leg. I think she said she's the first person to go into space with a prosthesis. And so she was saying that she, they talked about when she learned she was going to space, they just gave her a call and they said, you know, do you want to go to space? And I was telling my husband, I would say, heck no, techno. Uh-uh. You find somebody else to go to space because there is no way. I think they're orbiting the earth 15 times a day or something like that. Oh, just, that sounds terrifying, stuck in space in a little tin can orbiting the earth. No, mm-mm, not, not going to do it. Mm-mm, not for us. Not going to do it. But you know what we are going to do? We're going to return next week with more on the ERLC podcast. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast each week, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. Weekly Tech airs every Monday and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill. Search for Weekly Tech and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.